if you're wondering why I am uh, wired, the, the, the reason is this. this. I've taught this course for a very long time. Uh, I think at least 30 of the 40 years that I've been at Princeton. But this is my last year. I'm retiring at the end of this year. And the Alumni Council, in their wisdom and their kindness, thought that it would be very nice to record these lectures. Which means that 10 or 20 years from now, as you're sitting around with your spouse wondering what you're going to do on a Friday evening, <laughs> and you say, shall I go down to Blockbuster? Oh no, dear. Let's listen to the one on the Sumner's tale. You see, they, they, will, they will be uh, available. But it, it will be more available if you rem remind me to turn the little switch on uh, as, uh, as I begin. This time, this is English 307, the poetry of Geoffrey Chaucer, father of the English language, father of English poetry. We're going to read uh, substantially his two greatest poems, The Canterbury Tales, uh, and Troilus and Crusade, and we will read some other stuff as well, especially his first remarkable uh, poem, one of, the, one of the truly great first poems in the history of, of uh, any literature, The Book of the Duchess, which he wrote in 1369-70. We're not quite sure how old he would have been, but he was still obviously uh, in his uh, 20s. The occasion was a most solemn, there are all sorts of seats up here, the occasion was a most solemn one, namely the death of Blanche of Lancaster, who was the wife of Chaucer's uh, patron, and who occupied a role uh, and not unlike that, say, of Princess Di, uh, in 20th century society. He was extremely uh, popular, much beloved, and so on. And here this unknown poet, who so far as we know had never written, you know, uh, published anything that we, can, uh, that we can identify, was asked to write uh, uh, a funerary poem. And it, it is a fantastic poem. Now, I hope those of you who are coming in picked up uh, handouts from the table at the back. They, we've run out of handouts. That means there are more people here than people told me there were. Would you do me the great favor of going around the room and seeing if anybody does not have a preceptorial uh, sign-up sheet? Would you just raise your hand if you've come in without getting a preceptorial assignment card? It's a little thing, okay? And uh, my charming assistant is going to uh, hand, one, uh, ha hand one to you. Anyway, that is what we're... Uh, th that is what we're going to be uh, what we're going to be doing, and I invite you to look at the handout, if you have it, uh, called Course Requirements and Expectations, and I will make sure that this is uh, available um, to those of you who haven't had a, a chance to uh, do it. The preceptorial system at Princeton is very ancient, as you know, and uh, it is uh, one of our treasured uh, pedagogical procedures. I continue to think it's extremely important. Therefore, the most single important part of your performance in the course is that that will be related to the preceptorial. This means regular attendance at the precept to begin with, first in body, and then also in mind, and if you especially can convey that second part, that would always, uh, that, that would always be good. But in your preceptorial, your preceptor will each week uh, suggest additional reading. Sometimes you may have an actual formal report to give in the precept, and all that precept work is what I call the work in the preceptorial. There will be a midterm exercise, alias uh, a short paper that is due at, uh, at midterm. This I have regarded in the past mainly as a kind of uh, diagnostic uh, tool. Chaucer is a great poet, but his language is sufficiently strange that many students approaching Chaucer for the first time don't realize that although the language is a little strange, you're going to find the same kind of poetic techniques, only 
more magnificently deployed, uh, obviously, than you find in many modern poets. So the purpose of the midterm exercise, which will focus on the slow reading we're going to do at the very beginning in the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales, is going to be an opportunity for you to engage the Canterbury Tales in poetic terms. So that is one requirement. There will be a comprehensive final examination uh, in the course, one part of which uh, I unapologetically build around the following pedagogical device. Toward the end of the course, I will pass out a list of 100 textual passages uh, that you have read uh, in uh, Chaucer. I will have chosen them because I think they have some significance or they exemplify something or there might be something that you could say about them. One guaranteed question on the final examination will be to make brief comments about 10 of those passages. Now, the only way that you can do that with absolute security is to have studied all 100 uh, of the passages. And if you study all 100 of the passages, I will have made you learn everything that I want you to learn uh, at, at a basic level uh, in, the, in, in the Chaucer uh, course. There will also be a final paper in the course. And since there is an exam, it falls on the dean's date, which is not that later date that uh, you can, where you have a paper uh, in lieu of an examination. There will be an examination uh, as well as uh, a paper. Now, Chaucer is a lot of fun, and uh, you've got wonderful preceptors who are going to try to make him even more uh, fun uh, uh, for you. I don't believe that this is a particularly difficult course. It is, however, going to be difficult to do really well in the course. I mean, to do really well in the course, you have to do well in your preceptorial work. We want a good paper out of you and uh, a midterm exercise and uh, a, a good uh, final, exam uh, final examination. Now, for the early stages uh, of the course, the two texts that we are re uh, reading, uh, two Chaucer texts, are the Book of the Duchess, which is his earliest poem, but a rather difficult one. Difficult for two reasons that I will uh, go into. Uh, one is the subject matter, this, uh, the extraordinary theological complexity of the Book of the Duchess, but it is also written in octosyllabic verse, that is, verse that has eight syllables uh, in a line. This was the French way of writing poetry. Geoffrey Chaucer grew up in a French-speaking cultural environment. You remember that William the Conqueror came at the end of the 11th century, conquered the English, and set up uh, a kind of uh, Anglo-Norman, French-speaking uh, establishment throughout Britain. One of the very remarkable things about Chaucer, as a matter of fact, is that he chose to write in the English language uh, at all. He had a friend and a contemporary whose name was John Gower. He's one of the two people to whom Chaucer dedicates the Troilus, he comes right to the very uh, right to the very end of the uh, of the uh, poem. And John Gower wrote three great big poems: one in Latin, one in French, one in English. Those were the choices that were open to uh, a English poet at the end of the 14th century. And the fact that Chaucer chose English and, as it were, uh, put, uh, put uh, uh, English on the uh, literary map is the first thing of importance about him. But although the Book of the Duchess is written in the English language, <laughs> it is still a French poem, so to speak, because it is written in this rather jerky uh, octosyllabic uh, verse. So we're going to be reading that. But the text that we will read slowly and use for our pronunciation exercises will be the first roughly 600 lines of the Canterbury Tales 
the famous general prologue in which he introduces the members of the pilgrimage uh, to Canterbury, each of whom is in turn uh, going to become, uh, each of whom is going to become a narrator. In the preceptorials, which will begin next week, not this week, just a sec, in the preceptorials for the first week, what we're going to be doing is uh, uh, doing mainly pronunciation uh, exercises. Now let me try to give you a little bit of inspiration about uh, Middle English. Modern English has developed a great deal since the 14th century. My next lecture is going to be a breathless tour of the history of the English language in which I try to explain uh, precisely uh, what, some of those, uh, what some of those changes uh, are. In particular, its orthography, what we would call spelling, doesn't really exist. If you think about it for a moment, spelling had to be an invention of the period of printing. It's only when you get printers, that is to say you have somebody who is supervising the way something is written, that anything like standard spelling could uh, evolve. So you will see that Chaucer spells the same word a variety of different ways. Now he doesn't spell it just any way that he wants to, uh, by, uh, by any means, but orthography is not always a very good uh, help uh, to you. On the other hand, there are some things about Middle English that don't exist in Modern English and that are very helpful. Every letter was meant to be pronounced, every consonant. So our word night, K-N-I-G-H-T, was still connect, as in modern German, you get connect, and uh, so on. And not merely is that, you know, help you in the pronunciation, it's just kind of cool that you have words like connect and gnorion, G-N, you know, we have gnaw and gnat and all that, a G-N in Middle English would be g -n. You were going to ask your question. Yeah, so I just had a question about John Garland's poetry. Um, his English poem did that predate Chaucer's work in English? No, it didn't. He's a great, uh, uh, he's a friend of uh, Chaucer's, but it, he's uh, also an imitator of Chaucer's. It's also slightly confusing that John Gower's English poem has a Latin title, the Confessio Amantis, or the Confession uh, uh, the lover's uh, con confession. I simply mention him. Uh, well, he is a, he's a significant poet in, an, uh, uh, in his own right. But I mention him because he exemplifies the fact that these three languages were all available to a learned poet in the 14th century. The fact that Chaucer decided to write in English, and I don't know why he did this. I mean, it was a kind of risky thing to do in a way, you know. Uh, like Bob Dylan giving up folk song, or you know, it, it, it was a daring move uh, in its uh, in, in its time. But the fact that he did it uh, is has has huge implications in the history of English poetry because he immediately was recognized as a uh, great poet. And in fact, 15th century poetry, 15th century, that is the 1400s, is pretty dreary because all it is is a bunch of second or third-rate imitations of Chaucer. That's in England. In Scotland, you had a great efflorescence of poetry in the English language by people who are called the Scottish Chaucerians. Uh, Henryson and Dunbar, both of whom were very talented poets and uh, were, able to use, uh, were able to use Chaucer uh, a little more intelligently. But in, in any event, uh, we're going to take it fairly slow, and the first thing we're going to try to do is to read a little mil Middle English together. Although 307 does not go along with modern norms, I've made one exception. People have been asking me for years, do we have any recordings of people reading Middle English? And uh, actually, there are some recordings of people reading Middle English. The standard one is by a Yale scholar of, of about 40 years ago, named Helga Kirkeritz. Now maybe you can tell from the name Helga Kirkeritz that that person is perhaps of Scandinavian background. So that when you go and hear Helga Kirkeritz's reading of Middle English, it goes like this. 
When the rapper of the shore is so to the rock the march, it sounds like a Bergman film played at 78 RPM, something like that. So, so I myself, I personally, your professor, have recorded uh, about an hour's worth of Middle English. It's on the web. It's on. You can get it on the. You can also go over to the language lab and listen to the records there. I will hand out. Uh, in the next lecture or two, I will hand out a little guide that goes with the, uh, the passages that I have uh, recorded. Remember that we don't have any native speakers of the, Eng of the Middle English language. So that the language that we are telling you is Middle English is a 21st century version of Middle English. We're pretty sure, we have all sorts of reasons to be quite sure that we're generally accurate. There are such things as laws, uh, linguistic laws and patterns. This is the way that linguists reconstruct uh, a past uh, language. So it isn't something that we're just making up out of, uh, out of, out of whole cloth. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be in the situation I'm always in whenever I try to speak some foreign language for some little snotty knows 10-year-old kid raises his hand, you know, and he's a native of Poland, and he tells you that that's not the way we say that. There are no natives of Middle English, and uh, you, you, can, you can get, why do we make this attempt? Uh, anyway, well, there are places, I'm sure not, not, not Princeton is not one of them, but I think there are places that actually offer baccalaureate degrees that teach courses in Chaucer in English translation. Now look, it is possible to take a bath with your socks on, but the fact that it is the fact that it is possible to do that doesn't mean that it is a good idea or that it's the most efficient way of getting your feet clean. The way to un try to understand a great poet or any poet for that matter is to try to understand his or her language. Now, Chaucer is a great technician. That is, anything that you like about poetry, meter, prosody, wordplay, puns, double entendre, especially dirty double entendre, okay? anything that you like is in Chaucer. And that is exactly the stuff that disappears when you put it into uh, modern English uh, translation. I guarantee you that if you try, if you uh, show a little spirit here, and we'll go back to your room and read a little Middle English aloud uh, each day for a week or two, you will be at a satisfactory level. The books. I see somebody. That, would you hold up the book? Here is a good girl. She has her book. Very good. The great big red book, The Complete Poems of, of, of Geoffrey Chaucer, is available uh, at Micawber's bookstore uh, across the street. The other necessary text is a modern English translation of the Consolation of Philosophy of Boethius. The Boethius is the only other text that we're reading in this course as a primary text uh, apart from Chaucer. Anyway, if you get the great big red book, I ask you to do two things with it. Bring it to class in the first place because a lot of my lectures are textually uh, based. This book is very impressive looking. You know, when I was in uh, uh, graduate school, there were graduate students in every department that used to go around carrying large copies of Das Kapital by Karl Marx. You know, I never, I think they were hollowed out and had, a, you know, whiskey in them or something. <laughs> Fortunately, we are in remission from Marxism and nobody is carrying around Karl Marx anymore. But let Chaucer play this role for you. I mean, you become an instant intellectual and you carry around the big, the big red book and it will, you know, help you keep in shape and all, all the rest of it. Then I want you to take it home and read aloud in Middle English, when that after all the short is sota and so on. This will have two guaranteed effects. Uh, the first place, it will begin to give you a feeling of power and mastery over the material. I'm going to read this. I can read Middle English. The second is it will get rid of your roommate very, very quickly if you're looking for a, a little bit of privacy. So our first, uh, uh, our first uh, uh, goal is going to be to learn a little bit about the English language and how to read some uh, Chaucer. 
Why? Because, as I just told you, he's a great poet of poetic technique, and he lives in a world in which literature is primarily oral, ear oral, rather than mouth aural, if you see. Uh, I mean, they, you're not reading this stuff. You're hearing it. And in fact, uh, most people, think, just think about a book for a moment in the, in the Middle Ages. There, you know, this is an expensive book and so on, but I mean, you have all of Chaucer. You have what nobody until the 20th century could ever have had. That is, the complete works of Geoffrey Chaucer, because we've gone out and tracked them down and printed them up and, and so on. In his own time, there would have been a few separate manuscripts of the different fragments of the Canterbury Tales. A few people would have had the complete set or complete up to uh, that time. That same person might have had a copy of the Book of the Duchess or might have also had a copy of uh, Troilus, but it was fairly unlikely. The way they would experience literature is by hearing it read. In fact, the ex medieval experience of literature par excellence was that of listening. I'll point out uh, as we move along various uh, moments in Chaucer's text where it becomes obvious that he has this in mind. He's a coterie poet in the sense that he is writing for a small in-group of aristocratic hearers who, like him, are very well-placed. I want you to read all the forward matter in the uh, Riverside Chaucer, which includes a good biography, a brief biography of Chaucer. You will see that Chaucer was an extremely successful uh, social climber. He started out really as a low bourgeois. He ended up with a granddaughter who was a duchess and whose beautiful catapult can be seen by you at New Elm uh, Parish in, uh, in, uh, in Oxfordshire. He, uh, if, if we could bring Chaucer here you know, and interrogate him in our time machine and so on and ask him what he did for a living, I doubt that he would even ever mention that he was a poet because he was a very highly placed civil servant. He, his job, actually, was about as important as the Secretary of the Treasury would be in our or Secretary of Commerce uh, in the uh, American cabinet. That is, one of, one, of his, uh, one of his jobs was. We also know that in his early life, he was a diplomat and probably an espionage agent. He probably went to Italy uh, to perform some skullduggery. Uh, actually, there, it's a great place for skullduggery, uh, Italy. We don't know that. For, but while he was there, since he is a poet, it's highly likely that he sought out Giovanni Boccaccio, who was the most famous man of letters in the, uh, you know, in the, in the 14th century. He learned Italian obviously well enough to read Dante's Commedia with great skill and cunning and understanding and to use Italian poets with the same uh, panache that he was able to, to use uh, French poets. So those are some of the reasons that we want to, uh, those are some of the reasons that we uh, want to read the poem uh, in Middle English. Now, although my first lecture is going to be about, the first lecture, real lecture, is going to be about language, uh, I don't actually think that language, per se, is the greatest challenge uh, in uh, Chaucer. It's pretty easy, in other words, it seems to me, to learn uh, the uh, rudiments of Middle English. First thing you're going to see is that it's still at least 50% French and pronounced in a French way. How many of you have studied a little bit of French? Almost everybody, or a lot, of, a lot of people have. Those of you who have are aware of the strange convention, as it would seem to us uh, in, from, as modern English uh, speakers, the strange convention that there is a different pronunciation in French for ordinary oral spoken French and for French as you find it in poetic texts or especially in songs. And that syllables that we call silent, that is, that we simply do not pronounce, 
are in French songs or can be uh, pronounced. You know, Frère Jacques, Frère Jacques, when you sing it. If you do sing it, it's a it's kind of a nursery rhyme. Chagrin d'amourdura. You would not pronounce that unpronounced E if you were speaking it. Now, this is the situation that you have in Chaucer. That's a perfectly 14th century moment, as a matter of fact, in the history of the French language. One of the big tricks in Chaucer is that a final syllable ending in E may or may not be pronounced depending upon partly on the needs of meter, so that uh, meter can be your guide. All the, the Canterbury Tales is written in iambic pentameter. That is, that's the great verse form of English literature for the rest of time. Ten syllables, five beats, right? The dot, the dot, the dot, the dot, the dot. Now, of course, he's not you know, purely mechanical, so he mixes that around. He sometimes takes out a syllable. Sometimes he adds an extra syllable. But just as a general rule of thumb, that will help you. When that apple with his shortest sota, the drocta marcheth, parasit the rota, and bothered every vein and switch the cour, of which vertu and jondred is the floor, and zephyr take with his sweet to breath, in spirit hath in every halt and hath the tondra croppers and the younger son, Half in the ram is half a course you run, and small befouled with mock and melodea, but slapin' all the nick with open ear, so pricketh him natur in here courages. Then longin' folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for the saken strongest rounded. Now, you, you, don't, you may not understand uh, every word of that, but you can see how beautifully melodic it is. I've given you a handout with these opening lines. I want you to memorize these lines, incidentally. Um, all your parents and grandparents had to memorize these lines, and your grandparents had to memorize them in high school. Some of your parents had to memorize them in college, and I would like you. Uh, at, so take a look at the handout uh, of the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales. When that apple with the shortest sota, the drocta marches, perished to the rota, and bothered every vein and switched the liqueur, of which Vertu and John de Fleur, when Zephyr ate, with his sway to breath, in spirit hath in every holt and eighth the tondra croppers, and the youngest son hath in the ram is half a course it run, and small will foul with mock and maladea, that slape in all the nicks with open ear, so pricketh him not sure in here courageous. I'm out of breath at this point. We're only coming to the end of the first dependent clause of this sentence. We've, we've not yet got to the subject of the sentence or its verb. Now, let me assure you, okay, this is the beginning of an epic poem. Chaucer imagined this as an epic poem. And you know, when you're beginning an epic poem, you pull out all the stops and you show the fancy stuff. And so there's a very fancy level of rhetoric. But at last, we've gotten to the subject of the sentence, what happens, besides having to take another deep breath, then longing folk to go on pilgrimages and palmers for the saken strongest strondes to fair Nahalwa's coat and sondrilondes, and specially from every shiver's end of England to Canterbury they went to, the holy blissful martyr for the sake that him hath holpen when that they were like a most famous line in uh, Chaucer. I hope you will memorize them by the time you, at, at, the, end, at the end of the course, it's just kind of fun to do along with uh, some other lines of uh, Chaucer. But I want to use them today to talk about what I think are the problems in reading Chaucer that are real problems and the problems that are only apparent uh, problems. Now, uh, that, as I say, it, it sounds rather strange, but uh, how, to, how to summarize, what does this sentence say? This sentence says that in springtime, when all the flowers are blooming and the birds are singing, and people are feeling invigorated, they like to go on pilgrimages, and in England especially, they go to uh, Canterbury, where there is a shrine to St. Thomas a Becket, the holy blissful martyr. Um, that's the gist of the, uh, of the uh, sentence. 
what is hard uh, about it? What is hard about it, to begin with, is that there are a few, very few, very few words that you actually don't know, that don't exist in modern English at all. I've put these in boldface type. You have two. The first word that you've never seen, perhaps, is hope in line six. And hate. Maybe you have seen one of those. What is a hope? Huh? Yeah, a wood. Very good. Are you a stu student of German? Okay, well, that's, a, that's even better. Uh, the modern German word for wood is Holtz. Uh, English is a Germanic language, and uh, there's still some German uh, left in it. Now, what is the opposite to a wood? Ge you know, geographically speaking, would you say? A meadow! Okay, what is a heath? A heath is such a thing. I mean, we only think of it in terms of the Brontes and <laughs> wild mad women, sort of wind and, you know, and the hair and all that kind of thing. But if you demythologize it, it simply means a meadow. That's right, okay. So this is a big cliche. And, you know, field and forest, uh, and, of course, it's an alliterative one. But Holt and hate are two words that have disappeared, except from English place names. They're all over the place in English place names. Chisel, Holt, Black, Heath. And in every case, they have that meaning that there was a forest there, a wood there, there was just a simple field there. The next word that we don't know anything about is in line eight, E-run, Y-R-O-N-N-E. But you can figure out what, it's, what it means. What must it mean? Run. It is the past participle of the verb run. Now, uh, why do we have this strange thing? In the early Germanic languages, all of them, and still in modern German, the sign of the past participle was G-E, pronounced G. Ich habe gerocht und gerollt. These are the, the past participle. In Old English, thank you. It was pretty feeble, but it was worth <laughs> it. It was, you know, at least amusing. And you do not have to laugh out loud, but I would appreciate it if you would at least kind of smile. I think it's okay. I got it. That was a sort of that was pronounced G in uh, early, earlier uh, period of English. It's still pronounced G in German. That's the way you make a, uh, make a past participle. That became palatalized. That is, they started speaking up on your palate, and the G sound turned to a Y sound. Right? So that would have been run at some point, and then it becomes E run. So it's simply the sign of the past participle. And uh, uh, you, you see more of it in Spencer, actually, than you do in Chaucer, because Spencer looked at Chaucer. You know, Spencer's Fairy Queen is written in pseudo-Middle English because he wanted to write this old, old pun. And so he has uh, past participles with Y all over the place, eclept. So-and-so is somebody eclept. He was named, uh, uh, named that. So that is, you just have to learn that. That, that is uh, uh, true. Uh, line 11 that always uh, gets a uh, ribald uh, guffaw from undergraduates has to do with the verb prick, uh, which uh, means to stimulate. As in a great work of religious uh, literature of the Middle Ages, the prick of conscience, the stimulation of conscience. Uh, okay, the little birds don't go to sleep in the springtime. That's what this sentence says. Uh, why is that? It's because uh, nature pricketh them, uh, stimulates them in here, courages. So we have to learn that one. Line 13, Palmer. There are many words in the English language that now exist only as surnames. I'm sure you've met, known somebody named Palmer. Either, you know, Arnold Palmer, the golf player, or Palmer. Somebody, 
but you probably <laughs> Polar Pettifog. But nobody knows what the hell a Palmer was because they don't exist anymore. There were many pilgrimages in the Middle Ages. The, the, the Canterbury Tales is about one such pilgrimage, a religious trip undertaken to Canterbury. But there were many others. The, uh, when you read the description of the wife of Bath in the Canterbury Tales, you'll see she's been three times to Jerusalem. She's been to Cologne. She's been to St. James of Compostela. She's been all over the place because these were other famous pilgrimage sites. When you went on one of these pilgrimages, I, I don't want to make a cheap analogy here or any other time, but it, it's, they're, they're, it was an element of popular culture and it has something, it's vaguely similar to going to a rock concert uh, today. You were very likely to bring back the t-shirt or the, the, the badge. And there were badges that went with all the, uh, with all the pilgrimages. The most famous one, which you run into in Hamlet and various other places, is the cockle shell that you wear on the hat. That means that you had been to St. James of Compostela in Galicia in northern Spain because that uh, scallop shell, uh, like shell oil, is the image or emblem of St. James, the, uh, James the, the Greater. Well, now when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem uh, in the week... The, what becomes Holy Week, the week that he's, going to be, that he's going to be crucified, on the Sunday, at the beginning of that week, he was welcomed with great hosannas as a terrific prophet and so on, and people threw down on his pathway uh, strands of palm leaf. It's for that reason that that Sunday in the modern Christian calendar is still called Palm Sunday, and for that reason that Christians continue to use the palm as an emblem of that particular festival. A palmer, therefore, was somebody who bore the sign of the palm, which was one of the badges you could get only by going to Jerusalem. So that's what a palmer uh, was. The difficult line, 14, the one difficult line is uh, line 14. It has several words that we don't recognize, although they're not really hard. Taferna halwas, koth and sondri lowndes. Halwa, if you think about it, there's one festival or calendrical event that comes uh, late in October, come to your mind. Halloween. What is Halloween? Halloween is the evening, the night before, all Saints' Day, All Hallows' Day. So a hallow must be a saint, and so it is. Uh, and in the Middle Ages, they were more interested in dead saints than living saints. And so a ferna hallow is a body or the corpse of a saint uh, held as a relic in some far distant place, and it's kuth in sondri lundas. What does kuth mean? Well, see, it's sort of unfair. We have kept uncouth in the English language, why can't we have couth? See, what is uncouth is what is unknown. According to Spencer, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, 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 proverb that says, uncouth, unkissed. You would not kiss that thing that you do not know. Well, couth is just the past participle of kuthan, to know, and I think we ought to reintroduce it into the English language. It's couth, that is something that is well known. In line 16, you have the past tense of a verb, wenden, that is completely dropped out of the English language. Wenden was an absolute synonym of the verb to go. And since go was easier, uh, people go. But what do they do in the past tense? Today I go, yesterday I went. You, you obviously have two different verbs that have been collapsed uh, into one there. And here in Middle English, you still have both of the verbs. And in the final line, Holpen is another kind of past participle. It's a past participle of the verb to help. Let me ask for one last time, is there anybody here who came in after I passed out the preceptorial uh, assignment uh, papers? 
Okay, good. So there are only about five words in there. In other words, in that first, in those opening lines, that doesn't mean you understand it. But those are the only words that you actually don't know. What are some other problems? A worse problem, as far as I'm concerned, are words that you think you know, but have a different meaning in the 14th century than they do now. When that apple with his short soda, of the doctor marches Paris to the Rota and bothered every vein in switch liqueur. It, ba it has bathed every vein in liquor. Okay, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker, as, as we know. What's happened here? It's obvious that the word liquor in Middle English means any kind of liquid, all right? In modern English, it has become come to mean only something very, very specialized. That is to say, uh, highly alcoholic uh, distilled uh, a distilled drink. Beer would not ordinarily even be liquor, uh, but certainly whiskey or something like that is. How about the French liqueur? What is the finesse with that one? Finesse with a is liquor the same thing as liqueur? No, a liqueur is a little fancier. It's a sort of after dinner thing, a drambuie or a, a cognac or something like that. You see how the word these words wander around. Well, in the Middle Ages, it's still there. Vertu now is an abstract noun. Virtue uh, here it's still pretty close to its Latin meaning of power. That is to say, the sap, this liquor that is floating around the plants in early spring has a real power. And what is that power? At a line 11, uh, the power of spring is pricketh. Nature is stimulating the little birds where in here courages. Now, courage in modern English is obviously, if you think about it, a, a metaphoric, metaphoric usage. The actual meaning of the word courage is heart, physical heart. That's where these birds are being uh, stimulated. We still use the phrase, take heart, right? Take courage. Well, here uh, it hasn't taken on that meaning yet. It has only the, uh, the literal meaning. But even harder, it seems to me, I mean, you can learn, and I, I suggest the following technique, incidentally. The back of your book has a glossary you know what a glossary is? It's a specialized dictionary, a dictionary simply of the words that are used in the text that you're reading. And my suggestion is that uh, the first time uh, an odd word appears, it's glossed at the bottom of the page as well. Next time, it may not be glossed. If you have to look up a word in the dictionary, I don't ordinarily suggest you write in books, but in this case, I will make a tiny tick by the, the word when you look it up with a pencil. If you then find yourself looking up the same word and it has a little tick by it, learn the word. I mean, then treat it as though it were a French vocabulary word because it's probably one that is going to appear. But the real difficulties in this poem have nothing to do, it seems to me, strictly speaking, with language. Have any of you ever been to England? Has anybody here ever been in England? Quite a few people have been in England. Does anything seem strange to you about this opening sentence? When did April with April with sure as so to the drop of March as parasite to the rota? Have you ever noticed a deep, heavy, searing, burning drought uh, in March, or for that matter, at any other time uh, in uh, in England? I, I haven't. This might lead you to think it's symbolic or metaphoric, and so it is, because this poem is a great religious poem a great poem in which Chaucer is orchestrating a confrontation between the secular and the, uh, and the sacred. And what he's trying to invoke here at the beginning of the poem is the idea of the penitential season of Lent that comes just before Easter. Some of you have read the Divine Comedy of Dante Alighieri. This is where I think Chaucer got this idea. The Divine Comedy begins on Good Friday, and then goes, has three parts, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's hell, purgatory, heaven. The third day when Christ arises from the dead is the arrival in uh, the Paradiso. 
Now Chaucer, he doesn't have the same temporal scheme, but basically Canterbury is an emblem for the end of pilgrimage, that is heaven, this is what the good parson uh, 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 says, and it is connected, as I will explain later, with the idea of penance. So this is what the draught of March is, it's not a literal uh, drought. You have to, in other words, in order to understand this, you have to place the language in its cultural context in the same way that we do today. But the trouble is, it's not so easy to reconstruct that 14th century cultural context. How about Zephyr in line five? What is Zephyrus? Zephyrus, a Latin form. It's one of the names of the winds. But ordinarily we don't talk this way, you know? Zephyr is very blustery today, we don't find ourselves saying. Where do you say this kind of thing? You say it if you're a romantic poet, or writing an elevated poem in some way or another. You use some really fancy language. So Chaucer is signaling to us, through this particular choice of you, a word, that this is the kind of poem it is. Half in the ram his half the course he runs. We already know where we are. We're in April, right? And this has to be a reference to the zodiac. Aries, the ram. I'm Taurus, the bull. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I come a little bit later. But that also is a kind of poetic stretch for Chaucer. Ordinarily, when he was talking to his mates, he didn't refer to the time of year by the sign of the zodiac, but they're very important for symbolical reasons uh, in, the, in, the, in the Canterbury Tales. Finally, the holy blissful martyr for the sake of that Hammond told them when that they were sake Notice, incidentally, he doesn't move away, he doesn't uh, uh, worry about the identical rhyme. The word sake means seek, the word sake means sick, and he's willing to use both of them. Who sought out the holy blissful martyr who go to seek out the holy blissful martyr who helped them when he was, uh, uh, when they were sick. Well, what is this all about? He doesn't mention St. Thomas of Becket. We have to know who St. Thomas of Becket was. St. Thomas of Becket was a uh, 12th century martyr to the uh, English king, uh, murdered by King Henry's men at King Henry's uh, orders. Perhaps you've read Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot. There you have the whole story. Well, for many, many years, so about 20 years, I had extremely tidy reading of the Canterbury Tales because it seemed to me that it worked this way, that the pilgrimage has to be, as an image, has to be a totally benign image. Pilgrimage is good. We're all on a religious pilgrimage through life, and this is an image of, uh, of life. The energy of the poem is expended in a conflict between the worldly values and carnal appetites that are represented by the people uh, on the pilgrimage and this idea of pilgrimage. Then I started reading a little bit about the actual pilgrimage in the late 14th century. How did the holy, blissful murder help people? That uh, was the question I had to ask myself. In my naivete, I'd always believed, and I taught undergraduates for 20 years, that the way the holy blissful martyr helped you when you were sick was you prayed, oh, please, holy blissful martyr, help me, you know, pray to me, uh, for me to Christ. But that isn't exactly how it happened. When King Henry's men tracked down Thomas of Becket, finally captured him in the old Norman cathedral, he fell on his knees, he knew his last moment has come, had come, and he started praying. Richard Le Breton, the drunkest of the drunk knights, pulled out his sword and hit him in the head so hard that the entire top of the head flopped off, all the blood and brains came up. The sword hit the stone floor so hard that the point of the sword broke. All these items, incidentally, the top of the head, the point of the sword, and so on, became the principal relics that you worshipped when you went down to, to uh, Canterbury. But uh, immediately, they started preparing the archbishop for burial, and they took off his fancy exterior garments, 
And what they found underneath amazed him. He was wearing a hair shirt all this time, this great prominent figure. The archbishop had been living the secret life of an ascetic and a monk. They knew he must be a holy man. There was a paralytic, there always is a paralytic waiting in the wings in the medieval uh, saints' uh, stories, who looked at the blood and brains on the floor and thought, this is a saint, I'm a paralytic, I know what to do, and started licking up some of the blood and brains from the floor. <laughs> Immediately, he's no longer a paralytic. Well, they thought, well, this is really a, a pretty good deal, but soon we're going to run out of a sufficient quantity of archiepiscopal blood and brains. You know, so what do we do? So they put it in a big barrel. I'm not being irreverent. I mean, I love medieval religion. I'm fascinated by it, but this is actually what happened. They put the blood and brains in a big, they had a, a solution in a double sense to this problem of insufficient brains. They put the blood and brains in a big barrel and filled it with water. And just kept doing that year after year after year. So there was always a little bit of the archbishop in this. And then they sold this stuff. They called it the Canterbury water. And the way that it was supposed to fix you up was you would buy an expensive bottle of this Canterbury water and you drink it and it makes you well. We have hundreds, literally hundreds of these bottles that still exist made out of lead and pewter. It was a custom to throw them into the Thames River as you came back from the pilgrimage uh, into London. And when they built Victorian London and dug up the river, they found all these things. Now, I don't know what you think about the scene that I've just described, but I think that Geoffrey Chaucer, who is a deeply conservative Catholic Christian with a strong reforming sense, I think he would have been deeply embarrassed by this kind of thing. In other words, built in, I think even into the opening lines of the Canterbury tale, is this hint that uh, there's something radically problematical even about the idea of pilgrimage that these people are undertaking. And one of the thrills of reading the Canterbury Tale, and I'm sure you're going to see for yourself as we, as we move through it, one of the thrills is seeing this constant uh, give and take uh, between the uh, religious aspirations, what ought to be there, and what actually uh, is there. Now, I'm all done for today. Let me ask you to put your little forms, do be sure you do this, on the table as you go out by Monday, just a second, by, yeah, don't leave the room. Uh, by Monday, we will have a list of preceptorial, uh, uh, preceptorials up. I do want to introduce the, the uh, preceptors, Mr. Vanderelst over here and, and Margaret Daniel. And who wants to say something? Excellent, but do be sure to leave your little scheduling form. Thank you.